You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I'm your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you. We're going to talk with Larry Houston. Yes, Larry Houston, the first person of color to work as a Saturday morning storyboard artist. He worked on so many different series of the 80s and 90s, things like Thundar the Barbarian, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Conan, X-Men the Animated Series, Fantastic Four the Animated Series and so many more. And we're going to get into all of that in the discussion. Larry sat down with me last year because of the release schedule and things. This episode kept getting pushed back, but we can finally let it air now. And yeah, I hope that you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed talking with Larry. But in other news, things haven't changed too much here. Beth and I started watching The Mandalorian. We're enjoying it just as much as we enjoyed the first season. It's a lot easier going than a lot of the stuff that we've been watching lately, which is a bit darker in tone and everything, and so it's kind of a breath of fresh air in that respect. But we've also almost wrapped up Doom Patrol. It was just today we felt like watching something different, so we put on Mandalorian, we started watching that, so that was really a lot of fun, and uh, yeah, I mean, otherwise, not too much else. We got like four more episodes of Quantum Leap. And then we'll be moving on from that, so... And we're gonna watch the live-action Mulan soon. I've heard very mixed things about that, but I'll be able to tell you what I thought once we get to it. We did watch Bill and Ted Face the Music recently, and that was such a fun movie. The plot doesn't bear thinking about, don't think about it too much, but if you enjoyed the first two Bill and Ted movies, I can guarantee you that you are going to enjoy the third one. They definitely have recaptured the spirit of that series. So if you haven't watched it yet, but you like the earlier Bill and Ted stuff, I definitely think that you should check that out. But yeah, otherwise, don't want to take up too much airtime because this is the interview with Larry. Uh, And so now we're just going to go to our promo from another fine podcast. And then after that, we're going to go straight into the interview with Larry. Hi, I'm Joe Heath. I'm Tony Heath. And we host the Watchathon of Rassilon. A podcast where we watch every episode of Doctor Who and then talk to you about it. It's like an idiot's guide to Doctor Who. And where are the idiots? The Watchathon of Rassilon, a Doctor Who podcast made by idiots. And a proud member of the ESO Network.
And we're back. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, I am here with yet another person that was involved with two out of the three greatest animated series of the 90s, but predominantly talking about X-Men, the animated series, because that's kind of my goal is to interview everyone that I can that was involved with that show. So we have with us today a Larry Houston, who is the director of that series. How are you doing, Larry? Hi, I'm doing quite well, thank you. It's uh, pretty nice weather today, so it's a good time for an interview. <laughs> All right, excellent. And, and you're in uh, Southern California? Yes, I am. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm talking to you from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. What's the weather like there? Is it pretty hot, cold? Um, I would call it cool. I'm from Florida originally, so everything is cold to me here. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's much cooler than uh, California, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 50, it's in the 50s. Okay. We're, we're in a little bit of a heat wave, so we're in the 80s right now. But mm. last week, we are in the 60s, so it, it, it's bouncing back and forth, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> But before we get started, though, Larry, as I have with everyone who has come on to talk about X-Men, I want to thank you for your work, uh, both with X-Men and with animation in general. I was looking at the list on IMDb of the different series that you've worked on, and that was a huge chunk of my childhood (laughs) right there. So thank you for providing hours of entertainment. Well, I feel blessed for being in the right place at the right time. And I also say thank you for watching the shows because you kept me employed. All right. Yeah, no problem. It was my pleasure. So what I'd like to do is just ask a little bit about background, and then we'll start talking about the shows. So first up, where did you grow up? I grew up here in Los Angeles. They call it South Central, but it was Los Angeles when I grew up. And um, I was, um, when I first got into the workforce, um, I used to fix computers for a living. And I did that for like... uh, I don't know, about seven years. It was one of those things where, you know, you're growing up in high school and you want to be an artist. And then your mom says, you know, uh, you really got to get a real job. And so (laughs) I got steered toward being a computer guy. And I did that for seven years and I got kind of bored and I thought I needed to see if I had the the chops to be an artist. So I switched careers and got hired at a company called Filmation Studios. And uh, from that point forward, for the next, I don't know, about 35 years, I've been a storyboard artist, director, writer uh, for that period of time, which included, you know, directing some of the shows that you grew up with. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I was a director on, producer director on the X-Men, uh, director on G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe the movie. Um, let's see, Captain Planet, um, The Karate Kid, mm. The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, uh, Fantastic Four, second season. And believe it or not, I did three three Care Bear movies at the end, near the, <laughs> near the end. <laughs> so I did a, I, I kind of bounced around from a lot of stuff, uh, Robocop, the Alpha Commando, that kind of stuff. Mm. And a lot of, I did a lot of storyboards on a lot of other shows I wasn't in charge of, but I tried to do the best I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked on as a storyboard artist on the original Ninja Turtles, and I did about 152 episodes of that of that series. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, trying to think, I oh, worked on Batman, Exo Squad, um, Bionic Six. Um, some shows maybe not a lot of people know about Mighty Orbots and mm-hmm. Swamp Thing, Thundar. 
It's funny you mentioned Mighty Orbots because that's one that no one else remembers, at least that I talk to, but that I very strongly remember. So yeah, that's another one that I liked. Yeah. Sometimes I have to go on IMDb just to remember what I worked on because it's like, <laughs> you know, I went through it once like, oh yeah, I worked on Visionaries. I forgot about that show. Mm. You know, and then there's, oh God, what is that? Uh, Bigfoot and the Muscle Machines, uh, mm-hmm. Robotics and, you know, it was like all these shows I worked on. Yes, Robotics. I, I actually want to put a pin in, pin in that because that is a show that I think was way ahead of its time, but I did want to ask you one question about that. But to ask, you know, since you worked on X-Men... I see that you worked on some, you know, Spider-Man and his amazing friends and the Incredible Hulk cartoon from the 80s. Were, were you yep. interested in superheroes going back to your childhood? Yeah, I'm one of those uh, comic book nerds. I grew, <laughs> <laughs> I grew up, uh, you know, I grew up DC com- heroes first and then Marvel first. Uh, prior to DC, though, I was like, you know, I did the, the, the cartoony books I loved, the... Uh, Harvey Comics, Casper, mm-hmm. uh, the the Goofy and um, uh, Mickey Mouse, that kind of stuff. But when I when it, as it progressed, you know, I went into DC Comics and then Marvel Comics, and that's pretty much where my most of my um, attention went mm-hmm. was for the Marvel Comics stuff. It just, especially when I you know, hooked into the X Men, it's like, yeah, I love this stuff, and I tried my best. I was one of the storyboard direct, well, storyboard artists on um spider-man is amazing friends and i um i was working with stanley for about i got hired at that place about in 1981 and i worked there for almost nine years working with stan on all the shows that they were producing mm-hmm. and um the spider-man is amazing friends the one cool thing about that was that i got a chance to write one of the episodes um mm-hmm. there was an episode called swarm where there's a guy made out of bees and stuff mm-hmm. and i got a chance to write that episode Dennis Marks was the was the supervising producer. He took credit for the writing, but I got paid for the script. So, there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Still, it was probably really cool writing for Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And um, now I was new in the business. It was great to get a writing credit. Mm-hmm. I got a writing credit on that show, and I got a writing credit on um, GI Joe, where I did get my I did get the credit on a show called um, Hearts and Cannons. So, uh, I, I, I've been doing a lot of stuff. I had a night, I think I was, I had a very nice career on Spider-Man's Amazing Friends. I, whenever they had a section of a script that it would involve, uh, the X-Men, I would take that and say, give me that. I want to <laughs> do that part because <laughs> I wanted to try and, um, showcase the X-Men as best I could. Mm-hmm. You know, usually they're just part of a subplot of a story. And I tried to put my best foot forward in that, that you know, trying to put it out there for kids to see. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was also one of the directors of the pilot, uh, prior to the X-Men mm-hmm. and myself, Will Minio and Rick Holberg, we, we did a, we got a pilot fund. Actually our boss, Margaret Lash got the pilot funded. We kind of co-wrote it with a writer named Larry Parr. And, um, uh, we tried to sell it back in 86 and we had no takers. It mm-hmm. was like crickets. But fast forward about six years later, my boss was Margaret Lash, became the CEO of Fox Kids. And she called me and four other guys in and said, hey, we're going to do the X-Men. And so that's how it got started. You know, you wouldn't have seen the X-Men on the, on the air if it wasn't for Margaret Lash being the CEO of Fox. And she could greenlight stuff on her own. That was great. Yeah, no, um, 
before before we talk too much about X-Men, because I did want to ask you a few questions about some of the things you worked on in the 80s, you know, you mentioned Thundar. Thundar was a really, really cool show that I remember from when I was little. One of the things that I heard, and, and when you look at the designs, a lot of them seem very Kirby-esque. Was Jack Kirby involved in Thundar the Barbarian? Oh, yeah. It was um, Jack Kirby. It was Gil Kane and Alex Toth. They were all involved with in the creation of the series, and Kirby was involved with creating villains per episode. It was mainly him and Gil Kane, but mainly Kirby created a lot of the villains for the show. Oh, that's very cool. So did you get to work with Kirby directly, or was he just sending like drawings in? The way it would work is that Kirby would come into the studio and drop off you know, his, his drawings for, for the show. Mm-hmm. So I got, a chan- I got a chance to sing once in a while coming into the studio. You got to remember at the time when... When Thunder was happening, I was actually physically working at Marvel Productions. Mm-hmm. And so Kirby, we, Thunder was being done by Ruby Spears, which was a competitor to Hanna-Barbera. And so for me to see Kirby, I had to figure out an excuse to leave for lunch early or something like that. <laughs> zip over there and just see, you know, check him out, talk to him and stuff like that, and then zip back to work. But um, with Kirby, I also used to live like within a half hour of his house because he used to live out here in Thousand Oaks. And so I could drive to his house, and um, he, I went to his house a couple of times. He was a real nice guy. Mm. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed looking at the credits and things is that on some shows, you're a storyboard artist. Other shows, you're a storyboard director. And in other shows, you're a director. And being outside the animation industry, I'm not quite sure exactly. Uh, well, obviously, the storyboard artist is somebody who's drawing the storyboards, but the storyboard director and that role and what a director of a series, how, how does, what is the difference between sort of your responsibilities in those different roles? The storyboard artist, storyboard director are, are interchangeable. They actually mean the same thing. When you're a director, that's a huge difference because a director is in charge of all the storyboard artists of the show. And he's the one controlling the overall, you know, the, the big picture of, of making sure that the, the uh, show works. So, yeah, story director, story artist, it's kind of the same thing. It sounds cooler, but it's basically the same thing. (laughs) Okay. And I wanted to ask you about robotics. Now, I don't know if that's a show that you remember, you know, very well or or whatever, but because it was a serialized format kind of show in, in an age where that was pretty rare for animated series. And because the storylines didn't, I mean, it it was like a true sci-fi kind of series that, it just seemed like the writing and everything about it was, was ahead of its time. I'm just curious if you remember anything or have any anecdotes about that show, working on that show, because that's another one that seems to have been lost. Very few people remember it, and, and it's hard to, you know, there's no DVD releases or anything like that. So do you remember anything about robotics? What I remember, I remember some things about it. I mean, I have a big poster of it in my, in my mm. office. What I remember wor- working on was that it was a it was a different type of show because it it was about these you know giant robot characters, mm-hmm. and I just remember having fun, and I remember working with the directors who pretty much allowed us to like plus the scripts, you know, mm-hmm. add stuff to the scripts and make it more interesting and more challenging. And I think we had some toys. I think the company sent us some toys. We had toys in the office so we could look at them, play with them, and hold up the toys at certain angles. Like, if you want to do a, a camera upshot on a character, you can, oh, okay, if I look, this is how it would look if the camera was, like, at a worm's eye view looking up. You know, we could use it for perspective shots and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. 
my best memory of it, I haven't seen it in, God, what, 20 plus years? All I can remember is that it was a lot of fun to work on. And a lot of us, myself, George Good, and some other people, we, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Like I say, it's a show that made a huge impression on me, and I was, I was only five or six when it came on. And yeah, I wish it was available on DVD because I really would love to see it again and just see, you know, it's one of those things when you look back at things you watched when you were a kid, sometimes you're like, yeah, this really holds up. And sometimes you're like, oh, maybe not. But I think robotics, (laughs) (laughs) I think robotics is one that would have would have held up. Yeah, yeah, that happens. Yeah, Your, your memory as a kid, it's like. You remember the good stuff, but not everything that was there. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's happened to me on old shows that I, I remember as a kid and go back to see it. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh-huh. You have to sit on going, okay, what was it that my five-year-old self liked about th-? You have to try and really dig deep and try and remember, you know? Yeah, it's happened with me several times with shows that I've gone back and watched. But yeah, so you worked on Ninja Turtles, too. And like you said, you worked on well over 100 episodes of that show. Were you familiar with those characters from the comic uh, that they had had before that? Or were they completely new to you when you went in for the storyboard work? Uh, for Ninja Turtles, I was, I was familiar. I said, okay, we're going to take the show and make it popular. But we're going to f- make it kid-friendly. So they, f- they went from very serious to very kid-friendly version of it. And my guy, you know, it, it took off like mm-hmm. crazy it made those two guys tons and tons of money every year mm-hmm. yeah i was going to ask you if you had any inkling of the kind of popularity that tmnt was going to have i knew people would like it but not to the degree because you just don't know and back in the 80s almost every series that was coming out they would you know green lighting like 65 episodes of this 65 episodes of that and so the 80s was like full of 65 episodes of almost anything that was a toy became <laughs> a, a cartoon show. Mm-hmm. And so you figured, okay, you know, the toy companies were backing it with their money. So it's like, okay, we'll, you know, it was, it was almost a flood of different ideas out there. And the Turtles had the longevity because they kept all the adventures light and goofy and just fun. And it was one of those shows that you could, if you were a parent... You could put your kid in front of it and not worry that they're going to see something weird. They were, they were, they were a great babysitter. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, it's funny because you say things like that, but, you know, just about any cartoon, parents, there are some parents out there that find something not to like about it. And, you know, so yep. with Ninja Turtles, it's like, oh, they have nunchucks and swords and stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over, yeah, when they, I think what I remember is that when they tried to bring it into England, for some reason, they don't know. They don't like the word ninja. Mm. So the when you went over there, I had some people bring some uh, gifts back, but all the merchandising over there was called Teenage Mutant Hero H E R O Turtles, <laughs> and they don't like nunchucks. Uh-huh. And so they had to creatively, artistically take the guy's nunchucks out <laughs> of the. Sh- I don't know how they did that. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that too, but yeah, I've never seen it, so I don't know what they did or how they exchanged it for or whatever, but yeah, that's it seems kind of odd to me. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's like, uh, okay, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess that's, that's their country, that's what they want to do. But the Turtles, you know, because they had the swords and nunchucks and the mm-hmm. whole thing, but they didn't really, unless they were fighting robots, they really didn't use use it to hurt people or anything. It was just like, Kawabanga, let's go eat some pizza. 
it was just all fun stuff. And so th- I think that's probably another reason I like working on the Turtles is that it was just fun. As long as you do fun stuff, nobody ever gave you any kind of uh, revisions or like change this, change that. As long as you kept it fun, it, it was a great show to work on. Yeah, I guess that's a good question because I really don't know how that process works. I obviously understand you do storyboards, which, you know, show the action, what's going to happen in the different scenes and whatever, but how that goes from that to animation. I mean, do the storyboards literally become animation and then they just fill in the gaps between the boards or is it redone and are licenses taken with what you put in the storyboard by whoever's doing the actual animating? Well, the story, basically the storyboards, if you consider it's like the storyboards are like a blueprint to a house. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have somebody who writes a script and then it's up to the storyboard artist to be like the, like a director of a film. Okay. If the writer says the guy comes in and picks up a a glass off the table, you decide as a storyboard artist, are you going to draw the camera high up on the ceiling? Are you going to put, you're going to do a shot where the camera's low on the ground? Are you going to do a medium shot? You're, you're basically the visual director of how to tell a story. And so once you've done your job and like storyboarded your section of the script, it goes to the director who will look over all everybody's work at the same time. And he makes a decision as to what works, what doesn't work. And if you've done your job, he won't have a lot of changes. That artwork is barely five by five inches square. So it's not very large, but what they do is they t- they'll t- send it overseas to Korea, Japan, or um, China. They'll take those little squares and blow it up onto real animation paper. And real animation papers is usually about 12 by 12. So they'll, they'll blow it up and uh, set up the shots based upon your blueprint of how things should work. And so they'll take it, they'll animate it, they'll put color to it, they'll shoot it in a camera and then send it back to us as footage. Now today, everything I'm describing to you, except for camera, is the way things work. Because now everything's computer. The process of shooting a camera, it doesn't exist anymore. They just shoot it in a computer, and then they'll ship the file over to us from Korea to to here. And then we'll take it into like a post-production bay, and they will take the file and render it into an image that's uh meets tv standards and that's what you see okay yeah so i mean my curiosity was more of so you mentioned that it's the blueprint and everything but do the animators after they've rendered and they start doing their own things do they add to the storyboard like the actual i mean i get that there's they have to fill in all the you know animation between the different boards and whatnot but do they add details take away details does any of that happen in the process or is that kind of like no it has to be this image has to be there, and then you're just filling in the details in between the boards. And usually they do not. One layer of production I didn't mention was that once the director's approved everything, all the boards, he will give that entire board to what they call a timing director, who will go through each one of those frames and say, okay, this, this scene should be five seconds long, this should be two seconds long, this should be one second, and they'll go through and, and choreograph what should happen in each one of those frames. And when they get it overseas, the animators have to follow that. Now, if they try and um, add stuff and the director doesn't like it, they got to redo it. And so most people won't do that because they don't want to have to. Overseas, if they have to redo a scene, they have to redo it and, and they don't get paid for it. So most people, most animators overseas don't ad lib. They won't ad lib stuff. 
Okay. And that's the way it works over there. Now, me, what I would do sometimes is that when I'm just a storyboard artist, I'm not the director. If I'm just a storyboard artist, I will sometimes take a scene. I'll put the kitchen sink into it. I'll try and make it look as best I can as if I had theatrical budgets. Mm-hmm. When it gets overseas, that, that those companies are working with a budget. And so the scene that I send over there, maybe they, if I'm lucky, they might give me 50% of what I drew because they may not have a budget to do what I wanted. So I'll just, I'll put everything into it and then they'll subtract from it based upon their budgets and what they can do, what they can't do. So that's just me. I try and do my best and plus stuff as best I can when I'm working on a show. Okay. No, that's actually really interesting to me because like I say, I don't know anything about the process, so that's really neat to, you know, kind of get a feel for exactly how everything flows. One other thing I wanted to ask you before we talk about X-Men itself is sort of leading up to X-Men, you were working on shows that I've always kind of said there was a movement going on in the early 90s, or at least that was my perception. You worked on Pirates of Dark Water, you worked on Conan the Adventurer, even Batman, I'm, I'm guessing your Batman work was probably before x-men some of the early episodes but those were all shows that were they were starting to write up a little bit it wasn't pitched for little kids they were writing for more of a teen audience shows more that adults could watch with their kids and still have things to enjoy out of it the storytelling became more serialized and i was just curious at the time when you were working on these kinds of shows, did you feel like there was a change going on in the animation industry, or was that something that wasn't really something that, that came out at the time, but you know, maybe looking back on it is more apparent? My feeling back then was that people were trying to break out of the Scooby-Doo Super Friends approach, and the people who were pretty much the gatekeepers were real hesitant about shows that were like serialized or more for an adult audience because they figured... Kids are going to watch, are not going to watch it. You're not going to, not going to get the ratings. And a lot of shows like that, we were always fighting with people in the networks who thought that approach is wrong. You got to taper your stories for a younger demographic. And that, that was pretty much their mindset. And so you, a lot of those shows, you, you had to fight to try and get anything good past them. And like with Batman, Warner Brothers had a ton of money. And so they could with their ton of money and what they want to do with their character, because they're very protective of Batman. They pretty much could bully their way through and say, look, this is what we're doing. <laughs> Things like Swamp Thing didn't have that huge amount of money. So they pretty much, it was kind of a mixed bag of like trying to get good stories out and then pulling you back from the drama. So it was kind of a tug of war sometimes. So yeah, it was all in that era, early 90s. It was like that era of trying to break through. Trying, you know, It's like cracks on the ceiling. We're trying to get right. out. <laughs> yeah, because it just, it was amazing to me because I, I grew, you know, I was born in 1980. And so I'm growing up in the 80s and then becoming a teen in the 90s. And it felt like animation was growing up with me. Right. Where as I was getting older, there were now suddenly animated shows that were being written for my age and not the age that I was. Right, exactly. So it was, for me, that was great. <laughs> Because I was getting to an age where I was kind of like, oh, I'm kind of sick of the Scooby-Doo kind of shows. And, you know, I was thinking, uh, animation, you know, maybe not. But then there were a few shows. There was Dark Water, there was Batman, then there was X-Men. I saw Conan after I saw X-Men, even though, at least from what I understand, maybe the production was about the same time, or maybe Conan was a little bit earlier. 
But those were the kinds of shows that made me take, you know, sit up and take notice and say, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong with the medium. Right, right. It's just that historically they've been written to a younger audience. Yeah, that's very true. And my best memory is that Conan occurred before X-Men because I remember working on it and wondering, how are we going to do Conan who kills people on Saturday morning? (laughs) How are we going to do? It's like, what are they going to do? It's like, yeah. Right. I know when I talked to Will Minio, he was kind of down on Conan. I know he was disappointed by it, but at least from my standpoint as a kid at the time, it was still better written and more interesting than a lot of the shows that were out there. So I get that he didn't, you know, that, that it might not have been to the expectations that, that, that Will had and maybe yourself as well, but I still feel like it was a step in the right direction. Okay. That's cool. But yeah, because we, amongst ourselves, we caught it. I think we called it Conan and the Kids because <laughs> we had to focus more on the kids than Conan slashing and burning and being Conan than what, what we grew up with as a kid, what we knew he could be. So it was kind of like, a, okay, let's try and make this work as best we can. But then segue, you get into X-Men and then you're handed the keys, basically. I guess not totally because there's still, you know, scripts and everything that you don't have, you know, that you're not overseeing, but you have a lot of the uh, influence then on the storytelling because uh, you're the director and can influence the the visuals and design and everything. So what were the challenges in getting that first season of X-Men on the air? Oh, there were so many. (laughs) (laughs) Most people did not know. There's the story editor. His name is um, Eric Lee Wall. He actually wrote a book called Previously on X-Men. And he interviewed all of us and he brought back a lot of the memories we had suppressed, (laughs) you know. And other than Margaret Lesh and maybe one other executive, because she greenlit it, nobody else wanted to do it. She greenlit it, and we, we were running to like headwinds of, from Marvel East and from Fox executives within the corporation of them trying to make us turn the X-Men into what I just said, like Super Friends or Scooby-Doo. And then we had toy people involved who wanted to put toys everywhere in the show. And we had to politely do a song and dance and try and get them to back off. But without saying, hell no, you know, we just had to do the political song and dance. Up to a point where I think there either was one event or two events. I can't remember what it was. But it escalated from the, part of, from the point of like asking us to do stuff to saying you will do stuff. And it got to the point where the five of us, I'm paraphrasing, but we just said that, look, if, if this is the show you want to do, we're the wrong creative team, and all five of us are going to quit. Hmm. And we had to that made them back off creatively. But the other side of it was that since it was only 13 episodes, they didn't give us a lot of publicity. And so we were pretty much on our own. They figured we'd be one and gone. And so myself, I had been involved with the X-Men pilot prior to the X-Men hmm. way back when. And it didn't go anywhere. And that pilot was fraught with compromises that we did. And when I got to be in charge of the X-Men, I said, look, we got one shot at this, and we're not going to compromise. We're going to put our best foot forward, do the best version we can, and hope that we find an audience. Because also, people don't realize that back then, there was no internet. There was no likes Mm -hmm. and dislikes. We had to write the stories by the seat of our pants and just try and do 13 good episodes. And for me, it was my dream show. To do the X-Men, I'm in charge of the X-Men, and make it work as best I can. Hmm. 
for me, in the first season, the last four episodes are like the ones that stand out to me, like Days of Future Past, all the way to the last episode, Final Decision. I was trying to redirect the shows and to make them as best I can, to make them the best I could possibly. We were getting good ratings, but we didn't know if anybody liked the show, believe it or not. And it wasn't until like maybe the 11th episode near the end that I think her name is Julia Leewald. She went to Fox. She went there for some other reason, but she asked one of the people there, does anybody like the show? And the lady said, look, I, I can't remember her name now, but I'll remember later. But she said, here, come, look, come over here. So she took her to a hallway. And in the hallway, you know, hey, you, when you get too much mail and they put it in these boxes, mm-hmm. little bins, well, there was a hallway with a line of bins as far as she could see. And also stacked to the ceiling on both sides of the hallway of kids who had written letters, with written, <laughs> who had written postcards about how much they liked the show. Mm-hmm. She said, oh my. And that's when she came back and told us the story. We're like, you're kidding. You know, we just couldn't believe it. Because us, part of it was that since we were, we had won the political battle and they weren't going to support us. We had no idea that we were getting fan mail. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we would have answered some of them. It wasn't until she saw that that I was like, oh, crap, look at that. And so at the end of the first season, a lot of the writers were let go. I mean, they're all working at some other jobs. Mm-hmm. I, I had my resume out getting ready to f- find some other work. When they announced that the series was being picked up for a second season, another 13 episodes, and that the ending I had originally created had to be changed. So my original ending was Jean Grey, Scott on a Blanket, talking about getting married. Our kids are going to run into the same hatred that they ran into as an adult. And Gene was saying, we don't know what the future holds for our kids. And it was a fade out. They're sitting on a hip. They're laying on a blanket. Sunset, fade out. That was the end of the series. And then when they told us the series had to get picked up, we truncated that ending, moved the dialogue around so that we created like this bogus computer monitor with blinking lights. (laughs) And... You see the same scene where Gene says, what does the future hold for our kids? And then you, we added this, this like computer shadow coming into the scene. And we had this technician voice, this quick, we gave him some quick dialogue. It's like, here, just say this. And he says, Sinister knows what your future holds. And that's how that ending got created at basically the last second. Mm-hmm. And so that's the ending of season one. But um, one of the things I, I remember as a kid, what I did in the first season, which I actually I continued in the next three years that I worked on a show. show. I worked on it for the first four years. Mm-hmm. I didn't work on it in the fifth. I, I had left to go do the Fantastic Four second season. What I did in the first season, said I, I remembered as a kid, in the, I'll show you my age, in the 60s, Stan Lee would drop in these cameos. Like I'd be reading a Spider-Man book and Thor would be in it. Mm-hmm. So when I did the X-Men, I would toss in these cameos of other X-Men characters. The show, it's almost like an Easter egg, Mm-hmm. I'm trying to help give the fans something back, but I always try to add those cameos to shows, but only if it didn't upset the original story that the writers wrote. Mm-hmm. So when you saw a cameo, like I think it was Slave Island, the writers actually did not know the characters. And so they would come to me, who was a fanboy nerd, and I give, you know, Cyclops and Gene, and I, I knew all the relationships. It was like a whole bunch of knowledge in my head. And so when the writers wrote that episode, he wrote. Mutants one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> and so I said, okay, which one's male, which one's female? 
And I said, okay, then I went home and physically brought my X-Men comics to work. <laughs> and I put it on a Xerox machine. Okay. And then I told people, okay, make this Mystique, make this Blob, make this Sunfire, make this mm-hmm. North Star, make this Aurora. And I started populating the world of the X-Men series with characters from the books. Because it's like, hey, if I was a kid and I saw the other characters who were like, wow, look at that, look at this, look at that. I mean, I wanted to evoke that same type of excitement I had as a kid in the series. Yeah, Marvel owes you a great debt that they've probably never paid you for because... So me, as a kid who hadn't read comics, watching the X-Men cartoon... I was suddenly like, hey, who's that? Who's that? And so I'm going out buying comics. (laughs) 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 Trying to figure out... X-Men, the X-Men animated series, got me into comics. Uh, You know, that's why I read comics, why I'm interested in superheroes, is because of that show. Because, yeah, you gave a sense of a larger world. Yeah. There's these other characters. I mean, in later seasons, you got Doctor Strange cameo. I think there's an Iron Man cameo. Spider-Man at one point. You see The Watcher. You know, yeah. there's lots of Black Panther in one episode. Yeah, that was the first animated appearance of Black Panther ever was in the X-Men. And so, yeah, that, that sort of sense that there's a larger world here intrigued me. And I'm sure yeah. it intrigued a lot of other kids, too. So, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, the, Spider-Man's interesting because Spider-Man was, I tried to put him as a cameo, like a Easter egg in the background somewhere. Mm-hmm. And when I submitted it to the, into the system, they told me, no, you can't use his character. And I asked them why, and they never told me why. So, fine. I, when I did the, the Slave Island episode, I populated with Blob, Mystique, and all those other, all those other characters. Mm-hmm. But I kept the same names. Mutant 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So, I put it through the system. Nobody said anything. Okay, cool. Okay, now I know how to work the system. So, all the cameos that you saw there, I never used their real names. They were called whatever they were in the script. <laughs> and so Black Panther was called African Mutant Number Three. Uh, the Watcher was called Alien Mutant on the on the Moon or something like that. <laughs> I never used their real names, and that's how all those cameos got through the system because they were never called Thor or Watcher or I think it was Captain Captain Britain once and some other characters. Mm-hmm. Like no, I just called them something else. <laughs> that's great. So, was there anything in particular, because you talked about doing the best job, and you know, you talked about putting in the cameos and everything else, was there anything else creatively that you felt really strong if we're doing an X-Men series? We have to either have a specific character, or we have to do a specific story, or any kind of detail that you felt it's got to be here? I knew at some point, if we kept going on the trajectory we were, we had to do the, the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix. I knew that was that had to be done at some point. That's what I was hoping we could keep getting picked up, and so we could attack those really, really good stories that we had back then. So for me, that that was like paramount. And when we did get the pickup, I, I think it was year three. Year three was Phoenix and Dark Phoenix, I think. And so I really put my best foot forward to make sure that those stories were visually as exciting and as accurate as I could to the books. But what we had to do which I don't know if people know this, is that when you have a book and you're going to adapt it to film, you have to make changes because it's film. It's, it's moving. It's moving around. Whereas in a book, you can have character jumping. You have like three or four thought balloons. As You, know, you, can't, you can't do that in film. But my model has always been, there's a reason why the books are successful. Just take the book, put it on the screen. I mean, it's just that simple. Just take the X-Men book, put it on a screen. But 
when you change stuff, change stuff because you have to. Don't change it because you can. That's always been my motto. And so we had to make small changes in, in the stories, but we tried to keep as much of the original theme, keep it in the uh, animated show. Like Days of Future Past involved uh, Kitty Pride, which we didn't have, so we used another time traveler, which was Bishop. Mm-hmm. And so that worked out really well. But it's things like that. Um, like I think when Dark Phoenix dies, we really couldn't have a character die on Saturday morning. <laughs> So it's kind of like we had to do something close to death, but not death, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> and what helped with us is that when they did it in the books, well, let me put it another way. In the film, the animated series, we had to make the Phoenix a separate character from Gene so that when we got rid of the Phoenix, it was a separate character. It wasn't like in the film, like the movies where Jean Grey's an alpha mutant and she kills people and so she's complicit with all the deaths she's caused and that kind of stuff. But so by making her a separate character, we could keep Jean not being the evil person who kills planets and stuff like that. So, that, you know, things like that. Because as much as we knew we were doing all of this, this for, we have the restrictions of Saturday morning. So we had to work within the parameters of Saturday morning. But the one good thing about having these writers that the writers, even though they didn't know the characters, the writers knew how to write good character stories, good character dramas, and that worked out really well. And so that, you know, we had good stories like uh, Beauty and the Beast about Beast having a girlfriend and running into prejudice and bigotry and that kind of stuff. We had one where I think I remember we introduced Nightcrawler and we introduced God and Faith and Church and stuff like that in one episode. Mm-hmm. But we still tried to keep the integrity of what each character was in the story. But the the writers were able to write good character stories. Mm -hmm. So those weren't exactly from the books, but they were the characters that people recognized. And we got to do some fun things with them. Yeah. And that's, at least for me as a fan, again, that's one of the things that I look for in an adaptation is you don't have to have every single detail the same as the book or the comic or whatever you're adapting. But the characters need to feel like they're the same characters. The heart of the story has to be the same. Yeah. That's always appreciated when creators have the same mentality for things like that. So one of the things that I've always wondered about, and this is something that because I was taping the episodes of X-Men as they came out, right? I knew for sure was happening. It wasn't just in my mind. The first time the episodes were shown, sometimes visually when they were rerun, there were changes uh, made to it. One one example I can think of right off the bat is in Days of Future Past Part 2, when Bishop comes back to the future. He walks, he talks to Forge, and there's this glass cylinder, and there's like a robot sitting in the glass cylinder. Well, when that episode was rerun, it was Wolverine's skeleton in a glass cylinder. So I was just curious if you remember any of those instances and why the animation was changed sometimes with the episodes after after because i i can't remember a single other show where i ever noticed that when it was rerun that the animation was changed what happens is that that's what they in our industry we call it a retake and basically we get a version of the scenes and if the scene is not correct then we send it back to the overseas say okay no this is wrong you need to change this or change that Mm -hmm. the x-men was on such a tight schedule that we never got the retakes on the first viewing it was always supposed to be wolverine and so we requested that they change it to what we drew because we sent them a model of Wolverine's skeleton. And that's why it was changed on the, on the second viewing because we finally got the retake in. Okay. So that's where that comes from. 
So it was just a timing issue that it went out without the retake the first time? Yes. Okay. And can you remember uh, any times when you were getting, because uh, this is something that I've, because I, I used to read Wizard Magazine, you know, when I was a teenager that used to write about comic book and comic book related stuff. And I remember that that's a story that I used to hear from interviews and things about animation coming back that you guys had to deal with that wasn't right. Can you remember any times when, when the animation came back and you were just like, oh no, we got to fix something. Oh, there are a couple of ones, but the big one was the first three episodes. The first three episodes. We had the first and second episode when it came back, it looked like crap. I don't know how else to describe it. They were like really bad, a lot of retakes in it. And we had to lean on the lady who put us in charge of Margaret Lesh to lean on the company overseas, say, look, this thing is just not good. And we have a list of retakes you guys have to do. The show was originally supposed to air in September of that year. And because she leaned on them saying, it's sometimes it's a game where they know the show has to hit hit the air in September. So sometimes they crap it out and sometimes they knowing that you've got an air date you can't miss. So usually you'll just accept what they send you, what they send us, and we have to live with bad animation with or sometimes. Mm-hmm. But in this case, Margaret said, You will do all the retakes, you will make the show good. And she was forceful and she made them do it. But what that meant was in order to get the shows looking good. Because I think it was a three-part or two, two or three-part episode. She had to push the air date from September to January. Mm-hmm. And that was really expensive gamble for her to take because she had, you know, people buy commercials. They, guarantee, they had guarantees of what kind of audience is going to see the show and blah, blah, blah. And so it cost them a lot of money to push it to January. But she backed us in trying to get, we wanted to get a good show. And so, like, I think the first episode came out on October 31st, which people thought, nobody's going to watch the X-Men on October 31st. Mm-hmm. And they did, and it had great ratings. Uh-huh. And then they had it again in November. But it was the same show again, because we couldn't get, you know, it's like we have part one, but not part two is not look, looking like crap. We have to get the retakes in. Mm-hmm. And so I think they repeated it twice. And then the third time was in January. You saw the same damn show again, but we had everything was fixed. And so we mm-hmm. saw episode one, two, three, and so forth. Now, this is all accidental, was a Machiavellian. What happened was, because our show debuted in January, instead of September like everybody else, like Batman and everybody else, when we debuted in January, all the other shows were in reruns. We were the only new show out there. And so we had all the kids' eyeballs come toward the X-Men. And they gave us a shot, and they put us over the top. They loved the show. And so that was an instance of trying to get what you want and make the show good. Oh, there was one other show that we got back that was not good. I think it was like the end of Phoenix. There was an episode that that came out actually a year later. There was an in-between episode between Phoenix going into the sun, and then there was an episode of Scott leaving the X-Men. Yeah, it's called No Mutant is an Island. I know the one you're about to talk about. At the end of that, that's when they say, Gene's alive. And then that connects to the episodes, but that was a year (laughs) later. It's like, what? Wait, it was weird. Uh Uh-huh. That was very confusing for a viewer oh, yes. at the time. <laughs> yes, and that was like probably the worst continuity thing we did. That We had no control over it. We got crap, and we had to send it back. No. Can you remember the kinds of things when you say that it was crap? Like, what was wrong with it? That they were just like, no, we, we have to redo this. Let's see. People talking, their mouths are like off their faces. Oh. Things colored wrong. Camera errors. 
where you're supposed to track the character on the screen and then the character you get cell shadows you see the edge of the cells you know basic one-on-one camera errors mm. that you just can't air that stuff sometimes you can fix stuff in post-production which is mm-hmm. expensive you can take it back then you could use a computer and try and fix stuff but it got to be real expensive and if it's too much it's better to just let them you know send it back and let them do it mm-hmm. and that was the case in these like the first three episodes of night of the sentinels and the one with no mutants and island and those needed a lot of work it worked out yeah but it <laughs> <laughs> without margaret lesh being there we probably would have been stuck with crappy work but luckily she was there for us sure yeah so you're doing X-Men at the same time Batman's coming out. Spider-Man came a year later after that first year of X-Men. Did you ever feel that you were in competition with those other shows? Or was it just kind of like, hey, superheroes are hot now, that's great? Not really in competition, I think, because Spider-Man and X-Men were pretty much the same company. So it was just like, hey, you know, we're, we're both doing great. Mm-hmm. And with Batman, it was Warner Brothers, but the guy in charge, his name was Bruce Timm. And we were all buddies from way back when at working at Filmation. So I was just happy for his success as he was for mine. So we were just having a great time. It wasn't, it might've been playful, like maybe, you know, playful, like who's doing better here or there, mm-hmm. but no real animosity. We were all grateful for everyone's success. Okay. So I saw that you were working on ExoSquad as well as a storyboard artist. So were you doing that at the same time that you were directing X-Men? Yep. See, I can't do that stuff anymore. That's back when I was like 25 <laughs> years old. I got to do a day job, a night job, and not worry about anything. I was drawing like crazy. Mm-hmm. ExoSquad was uh, Will Minio and uh, Eric Lewald were involved with that. And so um, there was a downtime between X, like the first season of X-Men and the second season of X-Men. And Eric went to go work on ExoSquad with Will Minio. And so yeah, I got a chance to work on some of the shows. And then when the X-Men really got back on track, that's when he came back to the X-Men to do season two all the way to season five. Yeah, I was just young and crazy back then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I saw that and I was like, wait a minute, those shows are running at the same time. That sounds like that's a a crazy amount of work there. Yeah, a lot of the shows I'd be working at Marvel and then at nighttime I work on another show like Thundar or the rest of them. I was also, do you remember the He-Man toys back way back when? Yes. Well, in the back of the toys, there was like a little comic book, a little mini comic book. I drew the first, I think I drew the first 10, but I knew it. I don't know if they were first, but I drew 10 of those. At the same time, I was working my day job. That was a lot of fun, too. I did a lot of G.I. Joe t-shirts for Hasbro. Hmm. You could buy you know, for the kids and stuff. Oh, that's cool. So with Exo Squad, was there anything that like really drew you to that? Or was it just, hey, this is keeping me busy while I'm between seasons and X-Men? It was more of like, my friend Will was directing it. He asked me, did I want to do an episode? I went, yeah, sure. Give it a shot. You know, I just wanted to have some fun. And I didn't really know what Exosquad was all about until I got the script and series Bible. It's like, oh, okay. And it was just fun. It's like, uh, I, um, yeah, it's just fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, Exo Squad is the other series that I list. I list X Men and Exo Squad as like the two of the three great animated shows of all time. Right. And so, yeah, it's it's kind of neat to me how many people who worked on X Men also worked on Exo Squad. I had no clue at the time, 
But now looking back at it, I was like, oh, okay, those elements that I liked in, in X-Men, the reason I was drawn to Exo Squad is because a lot of the same creative people were working on it. And so they brought the same kind of sensibilities to Exo Squad that they brought to X-Men. Yep, it was uh, directly Eric Leewall and Will Minio, because Will Minio was involved with season one of the X-Men. So yeah, it was, it was basically the same crew. Yeah, I talked to Will actually... Um, I don't know, it's probably six or seven months ago now. But yeah, I talked to Will and we talked about Exo Squad a good bit. Also, um, Michael and Mark Edens, who were uh, writers on X-Men, went to write for Exo Squad. Yes. So there's a lot of the same creative DNA in both shows. Yep, yep, that's true. Yeah. So, so why did you decide to leave X-Men? I was offered the Fantastic Four. Season one was being evaluated and they said that it really wasn't good. <laughs> And that they needed someone to take over season two. Basically, they were doing like the first season was 26 episodes and they had a second 26. They needed someone to do what I did with the X-Men. We needed someone to do that on the Fantastic Four. And I had done four years of X-Men and the temptation was for me, I was like, okay, not only did they kind of gave me a lot more money, but also they said yes to what I wanted, which was like, I wanted to do the classic stories. I want to go back to what made the, the books fun for me, and I want to put those on the screen, and I don't want interference. You know, I don't want to be micromanaged. And when I said yes to all that, that's when I, I made the jump from one series to another. And my assistant director, his name was Frank Squalacci, then he took over the series because he had been with me from the beginning. And so he just he figured he could take it from you know season five and, and run with it. and so. That's when I left to do Fantastic Four, and we did the you know we we did the classic episodes, the Inhumans. We did the Black Panther. We did Doctor Doom stealing the Silver Surfer's powers. We did uh, stuff like that. And a blind man shall lead them. Yeah, we did try to do all the classic stories. And so again, as somebody who was watching this at the time, I struggled watching that first season of Fantastic Four. I did it because by that point, having watched X Men, having started to read comics because of X Men, I loved the Fantastic Four. And so I, I struggled because of the love of the characters, but then season two came and it was like night and day. Yeah. You know, the voice talent mostly remained, uh, the human torch was recast, Yeah, but otherwise the show was like a completely new thing. Yeah. And the guy who did the torch, I worked with him. He was my, God, I think I worked with him on either Johnny Quest and I brought him over to be the new torch. I think that's what it mm. was. Do you remember why there needed to be a new torch? I think part of it was the availability of the old, of the previous one. He was not becoming as available as before. And part of the recasting is like, I, you know, it's like, hey, this guy, I work with him. He's great. And I want him to be the torch. And so he came in and auditioned and he got the part. So as a director, do you also oversee the voice talent? In most cases, yes. And like, I was the guy who picked the torch. I was the guy who picked the, the voice of the Black Panther. You know, stuff like that. David, such an excellent choice. Yeah. <laughs> that man's voice is amazing. Oh, man, yes. I'm, yeah. When I heard his, you know, tape of talking like the blank, I said, that's it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> we don't have to go any further. <laughs> right. We have the Black Panther. Yeah, he did another show in the 90s called uh, Gargoyles. Oh, yeah, playing Goliath, yes. Yes, Goliath, yes. And, uh, yeah, his voice is just perfect for that role. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. 
So one of the other changes with Fantastic Four is they were still doing the sort of Stan Lee intros like he had done in season one, but they seem to be a little bit truncated. So I always wondered, was that a, a decision based on Stan's availability or was that like an attempt to get more time for the animation or what was going on with the Stan Lee intros with the second season? Yeah, we decided we were taken in a totally different direction. And much as I love Stan, we didn't think it was appropriate to have those in the shows because we were trying to do something new new and different and something more sophisticated. So we made the creative choice to not bring Stan in for this. So we made the same decision on, on the X-Men because he in the Pride of the X-Men, he was like a voiceover guy who introduced the characters in that 80s pilot. And then when we did the, the one in the 90, 92 we had to politely exclude him from the show because we didn't want to do what we did before. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted the show to stand on its own. And unfortunately, I love Stan, but we had to make those creative decisions to, for the sake of the shows. Sure. So the whole thing, uh, you know, because it had been called the Marvel Action Hour in season one. They had Iron Man. They had Fantastic Four. Then when it became season two of both shows, it became the Marvel Action Universe. Yes. And there was actually this intro that they had before either show of you saw these little tiny shots of many different characters from Marvel. You'd see like some Avengers, you'd see Eternity and some of the cosmic beings, you'd see, you know, X, Y, and Z. So was that something that uh, you were involved with creating that intro? No, I wasn't. No, it was. I had nothing to do with that. So that was like, uh... I, I wish I had been because I would have straightened out. It was like I, it was like a smorgasbord of stuff. Right. And I was like, uh, I that's not the way I direct. I would I would have directed that differently. They looked like, ah, what are they doing here? <laughs> it was interesting. I think that the point they were trying to do was just show like Marvel has so many characters, and maybe later we'll show you some of these guys too, kind of thing. <laughs> so, was there any cross pollination or discussions between the Iron Man team and FF, or were you pretty much? siloed and, and ff pretty much siloed yeah we didn't do any cross-pollination in, within those 26 episodes because like i told him in the beginning i want to do the classic stories and so i don't want to do classic iron man ff no i just wanted to do the classic stories and so you know impossible impossible man and all the rest of that stuff so yeah pretty much iron man physically we're all in the same studio but we pretty much were on our you know each series was done separately okay it looks like you were also um, a storyboard artist on the Incredible Hulk series in the 90s. Yep. And it looks like from what I see on IMDb, if their credits are right, it was with the second season, not the first one of Incredible Hulk. And it seemed like, so So like we talked about with Fantastic Four, you know, season one was, a, you know, a certain way. And then season two, they sort of, when you came in, it became, you know, the writing became a little bit more pitched older. You're right. Things changed that way. With Incredible Hulk, it seemed to be the exact opposite. Incredible Hulk, it seemed like that first season was the same level that that Fantastic Four second season was. And then that second season seemed a lot more kiddie. It seemed pitched down a little bit. And I was wondering if you remembered anything about that, if that was like a conscious decision on the creative team or uh, what was going on with the Incredible Hulk at that time. I'm afraid I... (laughs) I'm afraid time has taken away my memory of all of that intricacy. Sure. I, I don't have any memory of that, but what I do remember is that I got to, to do certain fun Hulk scenes and She-Hulk scenes because I wasn't in charge of the show. I was only in charge of like, you'd have a script and so it'll be like act one, act two, act three. And they give me my act 
I would be in charge of what I'm doing in my act, and that's it. So the bigger picture of what's going on, and that would have been the director, and he would have the entire picture in his head of like how the show should work and more of the intricate knowledge of like what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I wasn't in charge, so I don't have any detailed information anymore. It's been too too long for me. <laughs> sure, no, and I understand. And I mean, again, I, I've seen I've seen your IMDb credits, and you were working on so many shows throughout the '80s and '90s, and so I get that uh, you know some of that stuff may just fall by the wayside. Avengers United They Stand was another show that you worked on. Yeah, that was directed by a guy named uh, a friend of mine, Ron Myrick. Okay. He was working at Saban, and they were doing this other version of the Avengers. They were kind of like basically like toys. Mm-hmm. They were like our kit. They were like the Avengers, but they had all these doodads and stuff <laughs> added to them to make them into toys. And so it wasn't the Avengers, and it was kind of like, okay, they gave me model sheets and said, "I'll make it work because I know how these characters sh- should look like. I-, I know how they should act." So I just kind of worked around the designs and just tried to make the characters react and do their actions, just like the comic books. But yeah, it was quite different. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine my surprise when I saw the listing in the TV guide for an Avengers show and, and turning it on for the first time. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're going, what the hell is that? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But yeah, that was one of the things I wondered is if you had like uh, butted heads creatively with anyone on that show because of how different it was from the Avengers that we know from the comics. The, a person who would know more of that would be Ron Myrick. See, that's a show where the people who were in charge of toys and stuff had too much authority mm. over how the show should look, how the characters should act. And so basically these were toys, really toys. They were in charge, and the X and all the Avengers got redesigned for that to sell plastic, basically. And so that's exactly what we were trying to fight when we did the X Men. Yeah, we did because <laughs> believe me, they wanted Wolverine curtains and draperies and all that other kind of merchandising stuff, and we just said, "No, we don't want to do that." <laughs> yeah, I think Will mentioned there was someone who wanted the X Men to have walkie talkies that had their faces on them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It was crazy stuff. Yeah. The writers, sometimes when they would write adventures and the characters, like character one would be on one side of the city, character two might be somewhere else, and they had, where do they keep these (laughs) walkie-talkies? So what I did was I took a page from Star Trek, The Next Generation, and just have them tap their X symbol. And it made it so much convenient. They pressed the X on their costume, and then they could talk. And you, you didn't have to carry communicators. Yeah, I always wondered if that was an, uh, a Star Trek reference, because that's what it seemed to me, too, was, oh, yeah, just like Star Trek. Yeah, and believe me, it worked out so much better. That way, I, I didn't have to design walkie-talkies. I didn't have to worry, like, where did it go? Where did they hide it? And it worked out, actually, because the one character who doesn't, who has to have a walkie-talkie, is the outsider, Gambit. Mm-hmm. And since he has a big trench coat, he just has to reach into the coat. And pull it out so it makes sense there. But, like, all the other characters have an X somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think even Jubilee has it somewhere. If not, she has a long coat, too. Yeah, I know. It made a lot of sense. You know, I'm not sure the comics had done it before you did it, but it made a lot of sense to have them have communicators in their Xs. So we've talked about a lot of shows, but you worked on a lot more. Is there anything else that you want to give a, a shout-out for that you worked on that you would like to have recognized or just let people know that you worked on it? One series that I thought I had a lot of fun with was Robocop Alpha Commando, 
which was taking Robocop, which is like a very R-rated show, and we tried to make it into something palatable for Saturday morning. And I think we did some, we had, we got some good episodes out of that, out of that effort on Robocop. The other show that I I tried to pour my heart into, but it didn't work, was a show that I did back in the uh, 90s called Karate Kid. That was a show where, when you see the opening titles, I wanted to make it a high adventure show. But the writers were, we weren't on the same page, and they were writing something more simpler, less interesting. And so I tried to put my best effort and make great action sequences and stuff to try and make the show work. But it only lasted one season, so I couldn't really save the show. Mm. But, you know, Karate Kid, RoboCup Alpha Commando, those were fun shows. Bionic 6 was fun, so was the uh, Mighty Orbots. Mm-hmm. But the shows, you know, see, I was in charge of Karate Kid, and I was in charge of RoboCup. So those are the ones like, eh, I wish someone would take a second look at. Sure. No, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, if, if somebody offered you the chance and said, hey, you know, um, we're going to try to redo X-Men and get all the creative talent back together uh, from the 90s show, would you be interested in doing that again? Actually, it's funny you mention that because we've had, now that Marvel owns the rights to the X-Men, we're no longer the bastard child that they have to ignore. And there is, I would just say, communication about the X-Men 92, the series that we did. And that's probably the only series that I will... Right now, I'm retired. That's probably the only series I would come out of retirement to work on. If they could let us pick up where we left off and continue forward, yeah, I would come out of retirement for that. And I've actually talked to all the voice actors, the original voice actors of the show, Wolverine, Rogue, and everybody else, Gambit. Mm-hmm. They, they're willing to come back. That would be amazing. Yeah. So, you know, that's probably the one thing, yeah, I would come out at retirement to work on, would be that. Yeah, I mean, this is the age of nostalgia, you know, a lot of shows come back that I, I mean, Full House, if you remember that sitcom from the 80s, is back <laughs> on Netflix, you know, so I mean, yep. it's, it's you know, so stranger things have happened, so um, yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, so if anybody can get out there and, and let Kevin Feige or whoever else is out there say, hey, we're still alive, we're here, and we, sure. <laughs> we'd love to pick up the ball again and, and run with it if you let us, yeah, let them know. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the voice actors. By any chance, because this is another one of those voices where I feel like was just amazing for the character, by any chance do you have any contact with David Hemblin, who played Magneto? No, not directly. I have contact with Rogue, Wolverine, Gambit, Jubilee. I haven't talked to the Magneto guy yet, no. But I can get in contact with him, but I haven't talked to him directly. I think everything's only been by email. Sure, I understand. This is just my own personal curiosity about him, because I know he was one of the people that Eric didn't get uh, interview, an interview for for his book. And uh, right. so I, that's, I, I'd really be fascinated at his take on the character because Magneto was one of the things that drew me to that X-Men show because in an animated show, it was so rare to have a villain who was as nuanced yes. as Magneto was in X-Men. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we did when we cast for the X-Men is that we, didn't want, we did not want people who, who usually would do cartoon voices. We wanted to get stage actors, theatrical actors, and that's, that's the voice talent we went after. We didn't want traditional cartoon actors. And he was like one of many that they work on stage. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's one thing that helped set us apart. 
Yeah, I know that one of the one of the stories that I've heard is like the when the tapes first came back of the original voice acting, it was like this is terrible. We have to do this. Oh yeah, again. they yeah they flew me up to to help try and fix it. That was one of those things. That, oh, the series is in danger. <laughs> not going, you know, not going forward. So we we did fix it. Thank thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, just as a testament to your work, whenever I read comics, if it's a character from that show. In my head, what I'll hear are the voices from the X-Men cartoon, that 90s X-Men cartoon. Yeah. They've become the voices of those characters to me. So despite the other animated shows with the X-Men and the movies and everything else, those voices from the 90s show are the the voices of the characters for me. So as you mentioned, you're retired now, but do you have any uh, projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, I put together a graphic novel of some characters I created way back when called The Enforcers. Mm Mm-hmm. And right now I'm currently working on a second graphic novel involving some other characters that they got published through Charlton Bullseye back in the 80s called The Vanguardians, which is uh, a bunch of characters. I'm trying to get it drawn and ready, at least maybe one issue for the San Diego Comic-Con. So that's what I'm working on right now to try and get that done. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to redo my website, which is Larry-Houston.com. I'm trying to upgrade that so that I can let people know what's going on and stuff like that. So... Yeah, I'm just basically I'm I'm drawing, but I'm drawing on my own projects as opposed to working for other people right now. So I'm enjoying my retirement and just having fun. Sure. Can you give a brief tag for the uh, Enforcers? The tagline for the Enforcers would be, there are eight heroes brought together by a villain to destroy one of the characters, and they end up turning the tables and defeating them and becoming a superhero group that helps to protect the Earth. Okay. So is that still available to uh, for purchase? Yeah, it's called Larry Houston's The Enforcers. You can find it on comicology.com. And you can also get a physical copy from a place called Indie Planet website. I know it's not .com. I think it's .net, I think is what it's called. And you can find it at both places, either a physical copy or you can download the digital version. And Vanguard's was originally published by Charlton Comics back in 1981. And I'm in the process of redoing it again, trying to get it ready for San Diego this year. Yeah. What I'll do is find those links and I will put them in my show notes for my podcast episode. So that way, if anyone's interested, uh, just go to uh, 42cast.com, look at the episode, and you can just click on the links to either Larry's webpage or to any of those comic projects. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So yeah, Larry, I think that wraps up all the questions that I had, but I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. And once again, thank you for hours of, uh, I mean, hundreds of hours, at least maybe even thousands of hours (laughs) of entertainment. Oh, you're welcome. Like I said, I, I, I'm glad everybody liked the shows I worked on. You guys kept me employed and that's very cool. I'm glad I was able to help with the entertainment that everybody enjoyed back then. Glad I was able to make a difference. And that's it for our interview with Larry Houston. Larry, thank you so much for giving us your time and talking so much about the various shows that you worked on in the 80s and 90s. We will have links to the Enforcers, both the print and digital versions in the show notes, as well as a link to your website. And if you ever want to plug anything on the 42Cast or if you ever want to come back on, the door is always open for you and we'll always be happy to do that. One update that I do need to give from when we did the interview is that we mentioned David Hemblin, who had been the voice of Magneto. I know that when I talked with Eric Leewald also, he had tried to track him down and hadn't been able to find him. And as I talked about with Larry, he hadn't heard from him. 
he passed away in 2020 so that's something that we did find out about after the fact after recording this so i do now know what happened to him but sad to hear because now i'll never get the chance to talk to him about playing magneto which was something that i was hoping i'd get to do one day but yeah, here's the point where I ask for feedback. What do you like about the show? What do you like about, you know, what we've been doing? What don't you like? Do you like the interviews that we've been having? Did you like this interview? What kind of people, uh, what professions or specific people would you like me to interview next? Let me know. And you can do that by emailing me at everything at 42cast.com. You can also go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can tweet to us at 42cast, or you can go to the website at 42cast.com to leave a message there. Or, of course, we do have the Instagram now, so you can go to Instagram and also send us a message. So there's a lot of ways that you can contact us. And on Instagram, we're just 42cast also. But yeah, of course, you can also review the show as a whole, and you can do that on either Stitcher or on Apple Podcasts. I would prefer, if you have an account and can do it, that you use Apple Podcasts for that, because the more reviews we get for the show on Apple Podcasts, the more the show gets promoted. So if you have the option and you want to review it, then do please do review on Apple Podcasts. But I know some people don't have an Apple account. If you don't have an Apple account, go to Stitcher. They'll let anyone leave a review. And so definitely would appreciate a review regardless. And it certainly helps with anyone who uses Stitcher if they see reviews there. So I definitely appreciate that. I also want to put in my plug for episode 100, which is the next episode. There's still some time here in the next week if you want to send in any questions, any questions you have about me, about the show. You want to ask one of our guests that we've had something, I'll see if I can get them to answer. You know, and I'm talking about either celebrity guests or any of the guests that we routinely have on the show. Like if you want to ask a question of Ryan or Stephanie or Angie or any of them, just let me know and I'll send your question on to them and we'll respond on the episode. There's definitely some treats in store for that episode. We've already recorded most of the parts of it. Obviously, the answering the questions part hasn't been recorded yet, but a lot of aspects of it have been recorded, and there are going to be some blasts from the past that you might not expect. And yeah, it's just a great way to celebrate that the show has reached 100, so I'm looking forward to it, and I hope that you are too. I also want to put in a plug for the ESO Patreon. You can go to that at patreon.com slash ESO Network. It's just a way of contributing to the network, of giving any spare funds that you might have. I know things are tight in 2020 slash 21, so don't think that I'm begging or saying like, you know, I feel like everyone ought to do this or whatever. But if you have it, there are perks that you get for contributing some money. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get access to early episodes. If you just look at the tiers that they have there, you'll see what you get for the various amounts. And it's just a way of helping us all out and keeping us doing what we're doing. So yeah, if you've got some spare funds, please check that out. And we definitely appreciate it. I also want to put in a plug for Time Streams, which is my other podcast. It's our sister show, where Juliet and I are going through watching all of Doctor Who from the beginning and commenting on it. Again, that's called Time Streams. Please check that out, because we're having a lot of fun doing that. If you don't want to watch classic Doctor Who, because you either don't have access to the episodes, or you know some people feel that it's too slow-paced because of the way they made shows back then, It's fine. We explain everything about the story in the podcast. So we tailored it for people knowing that a lot of people are hesitant or don't want to dip into Classic Who. So give that a listen, check it out, and definitely would appreciate some feedback on that one too. But yeah, so this is the end of the episode. Uh, Join us back next week when... 
mystery guests will be joining us. So until then, this is Nathan, signing off. You have been listening to the 42Cast, copyright 2020. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.